Welcome to Strong as Mothers podcast. I'm Michelle Fumagalli, mom, dietitian, and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here I share with you stories of strong moms, giving you inspiration and validation to voice and pursue your dreams and goals. Thank you so much for joining. Now it's time to get strong with today's episode. I am super excited to share this episode with you guys. On today's show, I had the privilege to speak with Juliet Starrett. If you do not know of Juliet Starrett, you definitely need to. So go check out her social media, the two businesses she's CEO and founder of with her husband, Mobility Wad and CrossFit San Francisco. She also runs a non-for-profit on the side, Stand Up For Kids, which we discuss in the episode. She's a mom of 11 and 14-year-old girl, a two-time cancer survivor, and did I mention she's a lawyer and a world and national whitewater rafting champion. Like I said, if you don't know her, you need to. I've learned so much from Juliet. She's a complete inspiration, and I'm so excited for her to inspire you as she shares her recipe for success. Without further ado, here is Juliet Starrett. Of course I did research on you, and it's it's really fun to read about you, I will say. Um, oh, well, thank but- you. Yeah, but one thing I, you know, that I kind of got was what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I say that to myself because I've been, um, we've all been through some things, but yes. you, you've been through a lot. I mean, uh, and I'm sure you'll talk about this and, but not only like, like cancer and you got, you got attacked by a hippo, whitewater <laughs> rafting in Africa yes. or something, and even yes. from being in law school with a six-month-old, um, having a, have, getting diagnosed with cancer a second time, which is like, what the hell? And what then, the hell? Yeah. Um, but really, like, you just seem to rise above it. And, and I'm super interested if you, if you, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If you have that mindset, like, what is the mindset to get through all the hardships or the ups and downs that you've had. Right. I mean, yes, I do relate to like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think the um, the phrase I've really been focused on lately, especially since I had breast cancer last winter, is this notion of trying to be anti-fragile. Um, and there's actually a book called Anti-Fragile, but the notion of, the the sort of definition of being anti-fragile is actually you have, you actually go, when you go through difficult things, you don't just go back to afterwards to status quo, you actually become better um, after you go through difficult things. Um, And that's the definition of anti-fragile. So that's kind of what I am trying to achieve, right? Like I'm trying to take whatever comes at me in life both positive, you know, definitely way more positive things in my life than negative, but positive and negative and sort of always use those to become better at whatever it is I'm doing. So that's sort of how I, that's how I frame it anyway. But yes, it's very similar to what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, I like the anti-fragile because you can put in the positive aspect because nothing positive is from killing. So I I think the (laughs) anti-fragile is kind of the better way to go. So I I do like that. Um, And... So, you know, I, you said in some previous articles that I saw that, you know, you learned two things from being diagnosed with cancer at nine or were you 19 or 20? You were were really young, 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 yeah, 19. And and that kind and not only being that young, but then that the result of that, it seemed like you kind of stepped away from collegiate rowing. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, actually, I had already decided to step away from collegiate rowing. I had rowed for two years already, Division One, and um, I had actually already decided not to keep rowing for two years after that um, because, you know, I don't know if you played a Division One sport, but it's it did, effectively yes. a full-time job, as you know. It is. And I was like, here's the deal. I am a good athlete, but I'm only five foot six, and... Mm. I knew that I wasn't going to have any row like post-college rowing career. And I just felt like, Oh, I had established this amazing community at school and I was doing great in school, but I just wanted to pursue some other things. And I didn't even have time for that. You know, like I ended up playing on an, like a club ultimate Frisbee team and I got a job and, you know, made money while I was in school. And, 
and was able to have more of a social life. So actually the, the, the cancer was just sort of a sideshow to all that decision. Um, and, but you know, it, it sort of, see, I'll say it sealed it because I was pretty sure I wasn't going to join back on the team. And then I was, and then I was diagnosed with cancer and I was like, okay, yeah, I need to do other things. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you just kind of lost your passion for it. And I, I exactly. tell that, yeah, I played soccer at Notre Dame and I tell people that if they're thinking about playing college sports, I'm like, it is a full time job. Like number one, that's my like yeah. first thing I tell them. And then the second thing is if you had a career ending injury, would you still want to go to that school and get a degree from there? And then, right. you know, that should be where you choose. Uh, so I was wondering though, with the, um, you know, and the breast cancer, you were very open about it and it's, yeah, it's just like, F cancer. Um, but you had said like the two things you learned from the, the thyroid cancer at such a, such a young age was, you know, I'm not going to let this define me. And you also said, um, I'm not going to die from a disease that I have control over. So, you know, it was just all about prevention and pretty much setting yourself up for the best possible success, um, health wise for long term. Are are those two, I know it's still pretty early after, um, the breast cancer, yeah, but is, I is mean, that still the same you think? Yeah, it totally is. I mean, you know, both of my cancers, I believe, although they'll never know are probably environmental in nature. Um, you know, I don't have, I literally have had like every gene you can possibly have tested in your body tested. And I don't have any genetic mutations that would make me prone to having like a genetic based cancer. Mm-hmm. And, Obviously, I exercise and sleep and eat vegetables and take care of my health, right? So basically, I just am really unlucky. And, um, you know, I I think I got, I'm pretty convinced I got the thyroid cancer by growing up in Boulder, Colorado, pretty close to this nuclear power facility that was closed down and became a super fun site. And there's actually a bunch of sort of weird young cancers of people I know that grew up in Boulder too. So I'm always like, oh, Boulder. But yeah, I mean, I still really believe that. I mean, I think I have been particularly unlucky and and also lucky. I mean, like I caught this cancer as stage 1A cancer, which Mm -hmm. I mean, I did have to have two surgeries, but I did not have to have any radiation or chemo or anything. And so mostly I feel lucky. I mean, I'm unlucky in that I have gotten two cancers by age 46. That definitely sucks. But um, yeah, I really still stand by that. I mean, I think like the, the real bitch is that there are certain diseases like cancer and Parkinson's and some other kind of gnarly diseases you can get that like, I don't care how healthy you are. No, it's you out of your those. control. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there's just like, there's all of us who take care of ourselves, like, we still might die from some kind of cancer or some kind of weird disease. But I think like, I'm definitely not going to die of heart disease. That's not what's going to get me. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to die of any metabolic related disease or whatever, right? Like, you know, so I think that that's still both of those things really still stand true for me. And I mean, same thing with the defining myself, like, again, I don't want to sound critical of other people. But, you know, I do see a lot of people who get cancer and they're like for the rest of their lives, they their prime identity is cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, getting cancer was like a negative part of my life <laughs> and required me to like, you know, do things that like surgeries and otherwise that were unpleasant and sad and it was super stressful. And so for me, I'm like, I don't want to define myself by my worst life experiences, you know? Well, I mean, it's, and, just a, it's just a chapter, right? It, it's, right a it's a page chapter. in a book. It's a chapter right. in a book. It, it's your, it's right. making it's, you more anti-fragile. And right. It's still a part of who I am and define, you know, it defines me on some important level, but it's also like, I don't have the strong inclination to like wear pink and go on cancer runs. And, you know, I just, I don't have that in me at all. Like, you know, I exactly, I'm like, that was a chapter. It was, I don't feel like I'm in denial about it. I'm happy to talk and share and whatever. But I, by the same token, I'm like, okay, that's not, like having someone, being someone who had cancer is not really who I am, right. you know? But, and I, and I think there's just so much more to you, right? And there's, yeah, right, there's exactly. so, and like you said, it's a chapter of so many. Um, so yeah, no, I, I exactly. think that's great. And, and 
we'll go into who you are because you, you know, we were talking about that. But you also, I saw, said one of the best things about yourself is you know who you are or you said, I know who I am. So um, and I think that's, you know, super important because um, especially for for moms, because I think when you have children, the first thing you think who you are is you're a mom and you kind of forget who who else you are. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely I mean, one of the things I see myself as a mom and that, that is certainly an important part of my own identity but I also really have a whole independent identity where I see myself as like a wife to my husband. And and then perhaps even more important than both of those things are not more important, but equally as important is I see myself as a professional person. I mean, I have always really cared about working and contributing and wanting to have my own independent professional life. And so I, I definitely see myself equally as someone who is, you know, I see myself as an attorney and an entrepreneur and someone who's trying to, you know, learn and create businesses and, um, and grow in that way. And I also see myself as an athlete. Um, I mean, that is continually changing over the years as I, you know, you know, my interests change and, my abilities change and I get older and so forth, but like, I will always hold on to that athlete identity of myself. Um, and so I think if I sort of, you know, if I sort of, if I put it together, like, like almost like pieces of a pie is how I think of it. Like there, the mom pie is not an outsized piece of pie, right? Like it's a piece of the pie, but it is not, you know, it shares an equal space with all those other parts of my identity that I think are important, you know? I, I love that uh, analogy of the pie. And well, what flavor would the pie be, though? Oh, I do like like a, a warm berry pie with Ooh. whipped cream. That would sort of be like my pie jam. I like that. Okay. <laughs> but I like, uh, see, look, a, a, a Juliet pie berry jam with all those different things I uh, I love that and and you said um you know a a big part is the the growth mindset the always improving ourselves and and as you said with the with the pie of the Juliet pie like there's all these different pieces and we're trying to improve and grow in all those pieces what are some of the you know the areas or what do you do to to make sure that you're still improving Sure. I mean, I am a really avid reader. Um, and I, because I, you know, sort of consider myself, I don't sort of, I consider myself an entrepreneur. Um, I do spend a lot of time reading blogs and books and other information about, you know, running a business and how to be a good marketer and how to manage people well. And, you know, you name it. And all those topics may sound just like boring as heck to all your listeners. But, you know, I, I'm always reading like businessy kind of stuff to try to continue to sort of grow myself as a business owner. Because while I think I have been pretty successful running a couple of pretty successful businesses, I always see so much more room for growth in terms of, you know, what we're doing as a business and how I'm operating as a cog in that business and how I'm managing my people. So that's always on my mind. Um, I'm, I obsessively read the New York times, um, because (laughs) I was raised by my parents, my, my parents and grandparents alike. Um, I, everybody in my family were, uh, at least at my grandparents' generation were in the military and these were like proud, Democrats, and I don't mean like Democrat versus Republicans. I mean, like, like my family is like a proud bunch of people who like really believe in democracy and care about like the values that our country has. And Mm -hmm. so, so in a very different way, they sort of instilled it in me, but I definitely was taught at a very early age. And I think in part because my mom was a journalist, um, to sort of take it upon myself to care about what's going on in the, in not only our country, but just in the bigger world. So I really do try hard to like stay abreast of what's going on. I feel like it's important that I, that I'm an engaged citizen. So that matters to me. And I, I take that seriously. Um, and so I'm always engaged in, you know, whatever, whatever it is, um, that makes me feel like I'm engaged and connected to what's going on in, you know, our big, big, Mm -hmm. huge world. 
Do you um, do you read um, it in the morning? Like when do, do you read business stuff during do, work hours? Yeah, well, that's an interesting development for me as a business person, and it's been more recent. Um, you know, I used to feel weird about reading during the workday. So I used to only do my kind of business reading like at night, you know, after my kids went to bed, I would mm-hmm. usually spend my, you know, spend a couple hours reading after my kids went to bed. Um, but I've definitely changed my tune on that. And it's like, you know, one of the the ways I think I'm growing as a person, which is like being a little more forgiving of myself. I think I used to have this crazy notion that like, if I wasn't working on important things, all the time. Like, how could I expect my employees to be working on important things all the time? And then I sort of realized, and I don't know if this is just a matter of growing older, that like, actually, in my role in my business as a CEO, like, it is important for me to stay abreast of what's going on in the business world and trends in marketing and hiring and, you know, human resources. Yeah, this is all part of my job. So for whatever reason, it took me a while and a long while in business to give myself permission to see that as like a legitimate work task that I can do during the work day. Right. Well, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. You write down a list of things. Yeah. You write down a list of things you have to do and it's hard to write down read articles to help. Right. Like, Like, uh, exactly. So it sounds, as I'm saying it, it sounds sort of crazy, but it really was this, it was difficult for me to like allow myself to do that. I mean, I was allowing myself to do it, but of course I was allowing myself to do it like after hours. And, and so now I've totally let go of that. And I definitely spend, I try to spend an hour or two a day on like, you know, what I call just like growth tasks. Right. So it's whether it's reading or listening to a podcast or, um, you know, whatever it is that's going on for me, I, I definitely take some online courses. And so, you know, whatever is this going on for me, I really have tried to not only carve out time for that, but I actually put it on my calendar and that's I awesome. now do it shamelessly. Um, now, and that's so important, you know, even, I mean, with businesses, with relationships, with whatever, uh, it's all about growth, right? If you're stagnant, you're just, you're, you're nowhere. Right. You're just standing right. still. So, um, and I will say, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I yeah. feel like I feel the same way about being a mom. I mean, you know, it, it is, it is, there are so many joys and challenges and, you know, I really have tried not to just do things one way. I've tried to be sort of open. And then it's been interesting to have two kids who are very different people and I think need different things as a parent. And so I've really tried to be open-minded and learn and grow and, figure out how I can like parent, meet my kids where they need to be parented, if that makes sense. Um, So that's always something I'm working on. And, you know, the thing with kids that you just never know is, you know, is it working? Like everyone, everyone always says, oh, you know, you should write a parenting book. And I, and I'm like, okay, yes, I'd love to write a parenting book, but like, maybe I should write a parenting book when my kids are like 25 and we have some data on whether all the things I'm doing now actually worked. Right. You know, (laughs) Because it is like a big experiment, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. There's no manual for parenthood because I, yeah. my, my husband and I always say we were the best parents when my my brother, when we were just an aunt and uncle and we didn't have a kid. <laughs> we were the best parents before we were parents because we could just look at what other people were doing and comment on it and talk about what awesome parents we were going to be. Um, and we weren't even parents. So that- <laughs> Yeah, well, I love I love to tell everyone that I was suit when I was that person, I was very judgy of other people. I definitely would and you know, I'm not proud of this by the way, but I would definitely look at other people with kids and be like, Oh god, when I have a kid, I am definitely never doing that. <laughs> and when I have a kid, I'm definitely never doing that. Well, let me tell you, without exception, every one of those things I said I would never do, I have done all of them and probably like times ten. Oh, you know, like I said yeah. this thing where I was like, I will not let my children watch TV until they're in the <laughs> well, And I was like, well, hell, my kid is six months old and I need to take a shower and I'm home alone. And like, I have to take a shower. So what am I going to do? You know, it's like, right. So I, there, there, I had a lot of those, those notions before I was a parent. And I definitely was kind of, I, I I'm ashamed of the fact that I was judgy of other parents. Um, 
but I have I have seen the light and of the error of my ways. I've loosened the reins. The yes. Reins. <laughs> or aka, I like to call myself a very realistic, go with the flow type of mother. That's that's yes. pretty much. And we have to be right, moms. We just we got to go with the flow sometimes because we just don't know what's coming up. Um, yeah. Well, the, the other one that's such a challenge, and I, you may not have fully experienced this yet with like a three year old kid. But it's the food thing, right? Because I'm sure you guys eat a certain way and I can imagine how that is and that you probably sort of care about what you eat and what your kids eat, right? Um, But, you know, that's like in my community where I live in Marin County, the birthplace of the farmer's market, like Kelly and I are freaks about the way we we think about food. You know, we are totally out there. Like we are the freaks who like insist that our kids eat vegetables, right? And that I'm like, a I'm a dietitian. I couldn't I couldn't agree more with you. Vegetables are key. A, like get ready, man. Like I literally was in a, a a PTA meeting last year where I was like, hey, uh, an Izzy's actually a soda, and it doesn't really matter that it's sweetened with fruit because once it passes your lips, it's still like sugar. And so it's basically we're selling sugar. At, we're selling soda at our school and. I thought we stopped doing that in like 1995, you know, <laughs> aren't there um, rules and regulations yeah. not to sell well, soda to children? And everyone literally was like, Oh my God, Julia, you're so crazy. It's sugar. It's, it's, I mean, it's not sugar. It's sweetened with fruit. It's fine. And so like literally Izzy's are sold at my kids' middle school, you know, because that's, and so that has been, for me, that's been like one of the biggest challenges where I'm like, wow, I am really just out there, you know? Yeah. No. <laughs> and, yeah. I can't look at like the menu that they serve at school, you know, like, cause she goes yeah. to school two days a week and I'm like, I don't even want to look at the menu because yeah. I'm just going to get, I'm just not going to be happy with it. So we're just, yeah. we're just not going to look at it. And when she's oh. with me, I'll, you know, we'll be eating healthy as much as possible. Like perfect. That, that's, that's exactly, I mean, that has been exactly our strategy. We're like, look, we're going to do the best we can at home um, and try to teach our kids what's important as far as eating. And then, you know, when they go to their friend's house and eat like a Wonder Bread sandwich, we're like, well, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Yep. yep. Um, come back home. You're not going to have that at home, but you know, you nope. can have this thing. <laughs> Food in general is just like you, I liked how you said you're, you educate them on the importance of it because, you know, they just, they have to be in the know. Like if they understand and they realize it, then they're more likely to make, you know, healthier choices. So, it's, it's not, I did a blog post on this a couple of weeks ago, but it's not with Gwen. Like I don't restrict things, but I just try to, you know, give her as best as possible nutrition as possible, you know, and, and we'll be educating her throughout the whole thing. Exactly. When she gets older. Right. right uh, and I've got two very different kids. I have one kid who has the palate of like a 50 year old woman. And then I have one kid who does not want to eat a vegetable, you know? And so it's, it's super interesting because, you know, to, it's, it's a challenge, right? But so I, again, it's like back to that idea of like, you have to parent your kids where they are, right? And so, you know, the, the way I talk about food with one of my kids is pretty different from how I talk to about food with my other kid, you know, because they have such different, like, well, sort so of innate yeah. sensibilities. Absolutely. It's such an individual, nutrition is so individual and, and absolutely the, the sensitivity of, of taste buds and, and things like that. That's, it's funny. You should, you'll have to tell your daughter when she gets older that she always had a, um, a taste as a 50 year old woman. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So another thing I read that I thought was really interesting was you, well, right. You're a huge whitewater rafting um, athlete, I should say, world champion, national champion, all these things, which I think is so cool living in, you know, I'm in Chicago and we don't have those type things here, but <laughs> so really cool to this Midwestern girl. But you said when, you know, after you stepped away from rowing and, um, in your twenties, you were a whitewater rafting guide in, in the summer. And you had said, um, you, learned how to become awesome at life through being a whitewater rafting guide. So I I was interested um, if you could share that story. 
Sure. And I think if I could give some context, I think part of the reason I love talking about this is I think we're in this era and, you know, I've got a 14 year old kid, so she's, you know, she's getting closer to this kind of thing, but we're in like the, what I call internship era where kids these days think, and I, now I realize I sound a thousand years old, but kids these days, and I think a lot of it is driven by parents though, think that like the, the path to success is having these internships, right? Like you're going to go get an internship at your dad's law firm or your friend's dad's <laughs> investment banking firm or, you know, whatever it is, you're going to go get this internship, you know, usually unpaid. And, you know, maybe you get some decent experience or maybe not, but like, you know, the most important experience, job experience I got that has been the most translatable to both practicing law on like a, at like a fancy partner level track law firm and, being an entrepreneur is working as a river rafting guide. And it sounds really nerdy because it does seem like a goofy job. But what was so important about it for me was it was like, it was immediately, it immediately required us to all become adults. And I'll tell you what that means. Like, you know, we were packing up gear, buying food, driving a vehicle 300 miles and taking people down five day wilderness river trips where we were completely responsible for their physical well-being, their mental well-being, their nutrition, you name it. Like we were running these like compacted trips where we had to do everything. Um, the other really important thing is, you know, you learn how to public speak when you're a river guide because you have to talk to people about how to get down the river and what's safe. And, and so you learn how to, you know, like on a daily basis, even if I was just doing single day trips on a daily basis, I was standing before a crowd of a hundred people, giving them a safety talk and getting comfortable being in front of a big group like that. Um, the other thing I think, and maybe this is one of the most important things, but it taught, the other thing it taught me is to, or two, this is a two part thing is to not be easily offended um, and to be able to talk to anyone because on any given day as a river guide, you could have a boat full of, you know, investment bankers from Palo Alto. And then the next day you have a group of construction workers from central California who ask if they can call you Queenie all day <laughs> and whatever, you know, you just like, I'm telling you, or you get families with little kids or, I mean, you name it, like every, you get every kind of person there is. And so you really learn how to speak to everybody, regardless of, you know, where they come from and what their political views are and why they've come on this trip and what they do for a living. It's like, you have to learn how to make conversation with people. Um, and I think that that is like maybe one of the most invaluable skills of all. And, you know, you don't learn that doing well, an internship at your dad's law firm. Absolutely. And <laughs> even more so now, being able to talk to people, the children growing up, teens, even, even in, you know, it's the millennial generation, they just have their, and really population now, we have our heads and our phones and our computers and we do not talk to people. Like, we'll, no. you know, they'd rather talk through email and text than get on the phone and actually converse with someone. So, you know, even right. now in today's day and age, being able to talk to someone is such an important aspect of, of business, like you said, and, and you're not going to get that internship. You're, and I completely agree with this internship thing. Cause I remember when I was at Notre Dame, like it was pivotal for you to get the best internship, uh, <laughs> at, when you're, you know, going into your junior year, your senior year, every single year now, so you can build relationships and get the best job, you know, right. Exactly. So, I right. couldn't agree more right. with internships. And I have had a few internships myself, and none of them were really as impactful. You know, and, and one thing I will say, though, that I've heard, and I think it's a positive change, is that I think a lot of universities are starting to get smart on this. And so let's say they have two kids, all things being equal with their SAT scores and, you know, grades and all that stuff. If they have a kid who had, like, an internship versus a kid who worked at McDonald's for the summer they're going to pick the kid who worked at McDonald's because there's something to say for like learning what it means to make minimum wage and show up on time and maybe have a boss who's not that nice to you. And, you know, I think the universities are actually really starting to see that that kind of real life job experience is really important to like creating a whole human and having like interesting people on their campus. Yeah. So I think that's a positive character. change. Yeah, it absolutely yeah. builds character versus what mommy and daddy got for you. So what a fun experience to just be outside and sound. It was so fun. Like, I yeah. mean, 
I, I will tell you that I learned, I, it wasn't until I later, like when I was 30 years old, that I was able to sort of unpack it and sort of appreciate all the sort of key life skills I learned working as a river guide. I will tell you that my 18 year old mind that decided to become a river guide was, where can I go where there are cute boys where I can be outside and be tan? So, I mean, you know, I, I definitely so, had like, my, my interest in getting into it was very 18 year old. <laughs> it's a win-win. So <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, let's see what else. So um, I had one, so you were in first year law, um, like, so you had gone to law school and you were practicing yeah. law. This is your first yes. year. And then you decided to open up a CrossFit gym, which I think what is like the, I, now it's like the 20th first yeah. or the 20th of the first CrossFit. Like, yeah, we, when we started, we think we were like 41st, but now we're 20th or something on the list. So yeah, Love very it. early. And then was your husband, he was in PT school at the time or was he already graduated? Nope. He was in PT school. <sighs> it's funny when I look back on it, cause I'm like, you're just crazy. But, um, yeah, we had a six month old baby. I had just started working as a lawyer. Um, and Kelly was, I think in his, uh, first or maybe first or just starting his second year of PT school when we opened the gym. And then you opened a gym. So you had a lot going on at that time. I know. I think we were so sleep deprived that we actually weren't um, thinking clearly. And so I think if we'd been getting full night's sleep, maybe we would have been like, wait, this is maybe a bad idea. (laughs) But you're just like, hey, let's go with the flow. Like, this feels good. Let's do this. I like that. And that that really was the motivation behind it. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, has asked us, well, did you guys start a business plan or do whatever? We're like, no, we fell in love with CrossFit. We love the training. We love the workouts. We'd started to create a little community in our backyard. And we, we were like, wait, we need a bigger space. We need somewhere for people to train. And so let's open a CrossFit. I mean, there was no part of us, nor was there any part of anyone who opened a CrossFit at that time that thought it was like a business where you could like make a living. That was not part of the calculus. Right. Well, it was just something that you love to do, right? Exactly. You just kind of took a passion and, and did what you could to, to make it your right. own. Exactly. Like um, so making a difference every day, something you definitely, I think, do in all your businesses, uh, stand up for kids. I've used your, I've used your term non-negotiables. I've heard you say it. I think it was, must've been Angelo's, uh, alpha hippie, but you used, it's just a, like working out as non-negotiable or you just use the term mm-hmm. non-negotiable. And I use yeah. it all the time with my clients, with myself. And I just, <laughs> and, and for me, I'm like, yeah, it's a non-negotiable, like working out non-negotiable for me, quote, quote, Juliet startup. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. Well, it's true though. I mean, I, I don't, it may, and I wonder if maybe I adopted it from someone else too, but yeah, I mean, there's some things in my life and I think we probably share a lot of the same feelings on this, but you know, sleeping is non-negotiable for me. And it becomes more and more non-negotiable as I get older because I, I cannot live without it. Um, and exercising is non-negotiable and eating good quality food is non-negotiable. There's just some things that are really around my health that are non-negotiables. They're just, they have to be. <laughs> and would be a, st- would a standing or let's say a moving desk be a non-negotiable for you guys? It definitely would be now. I mean, you know, I, I certainly was your like world-class sitter for years as a, as a practicing lawyer. Um, and you know, I was crossfitting real hard at that point, but I was, you know, I'd crossfit for like an hour or two a day and then sit at my desk for 10 hours. Um, and you know, but now I have really sort of shifted my mentality about getting as much non-exercise activity as I can in a day. In addition to exercising, I sort of see those as two very different things that sort of check a different box for me in my mind. And so, you know, it's really hard to not sit a lot. And our whole, our houses and our whole society and everything is just sort of set up for us to be sitting so much. Um, So I think it's really about like making sure that I have the, and and so maybe it's not quite a non-negotiable, but for me, it's really about being mindful and aware of how much I'm moving my body and sort of appreciating that I'm not designed to be sitting for eight hours a day and being conscious of that. And I definitely am conscious of it every day. I mean, you know, everyone's got all these like super high tech, like tracking devices where they track their heart rate variability in their sleep and God knows what else. And like, literally the only thing I track is my steps, which is like, which is like 1985 technology, but I'm always like, am I moving enough for me? That's my, cause I, 
you know, I, and you may be the same. I think it's because I was an athlete as a kid and in college, but, um, it actually is, I, I learned at an early age to like need and want to exercise, like do formal exercise. And so I know it's a real challenge for a lot of people to fit it into their lives. And I really respect that, especially moms who are working and, you know, lives crazy. But for me, I, it it's like, and maybe because it's a non-negotiable, I've always exercised. Like that's just part of who I am. Yeah, well, you're but an athlete, I, right? That's a piece of your pie. You're an athlete. It's a piece of pie. So, so, but move, making sure I moved enough was not always piece a piece of my pie until I sort of had this realization, um, or Kelly and I had this realization, you know, nine years ago that we were like, wait, what are we doing? You know, like, like we're just, we're literally, we were literally like working out an hour or two a day and then sitting for pretty much the rest of the day. And that's what most people do. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, that's definitely become a big part of my, my, it's part of my daily consciousness. And, Absolutely. you know, one of the ways I make sure I move enough is I stand while I work. I mean, that's, it just makes it way easier for me to stand. Yeah. I have a, I have an Apple watch and I literally just, I think updated it in the last year this weekend. And the only thing I really use my Apple watch for is my steps <laughs> and, my, and like my workouts. Um, so I'm, I'm super lame. I'll, anyone who, who has Apple watches probably will say that there's so hey. much more I can do with it. Well, yeah, Kelly, Kelly point, I have an Apple watch too. And Kelly pointed out to me, he's like, what's in your Apple watch was like the same amount of computing that was required to like send a man to the moon in the sixties. Like it's basically <laughs> right it's so advanced and there's so much going on and I'm the same too. I'm like, sweet. I got my 12,000. <laughs> and I literally could buy like a $5 pedometer and attach it to my belt and get the same data. So I mean, you know, I'm, no, but we're so, the same. I know. It's so funny. Cause I'm the, I literally just check my steps throughout the day. I'm like, all right. Like I got, you know, and, but exactly. It, and it showed a study just came out, I think uh, a past couple of weeks um, that showed, you know, it's not just 10,000 steps that matters. It's a hundred percent. You're, you know, you need to be working out at the, you know, you know, five, five times, three to five times a week where, you know, wherever you are at the moment, but exercising is so important. And, and then you're 10 or you said you're 12,000 steps, or, you know, if you're at six now, let's get to eight. Um, those steps are on top of your workout. And I think that's a huge thing that I, that I share with people too. I, it's, it's not only your workout, but yeah, your movement throughout the day and, and your, um, you know, the stand-up desk, or as you call it more so like the moving desk, because that's what it is. It's just helping you move more. Um, that's, that's so important to me. I don't have a stand-up desk because I'm at like a couple different desks when I'm at work. So, but it's, it's pretty funny because I will literally stand at the sitting <laughs> at the desk <laughs> and try to do work at a non-standing desk. And people are like, oh yeah. What you, are you, you doing? <laughs> yeah. I, I love uh, that. Yeah. But I will give you props for that, you and your husband. So um, thank you for well, making you. me so much, uh, you know, being well, aware of my sitting. You know what? You know what really was impactful to me was I saw a graph one time that showed that the or, or showed this data that says that, you know, the obesity rates in, the, in America have equally tracked people's gym memberships. Um, because, you know, the gym memberships really rose in like the mid eighties, you know, people didn't really go to the gym that much until like the eighties and when like aerobics came onto the scene. But so what that has always told me is that people are getting the message from the greater world that like they need to go exercise, right. That they need to do that. And whether or not they comply and actually go to the gym, I mean, that's a different conversation, but people are joining gyms, obviously, because they're getting the message, like you should exercise, like human beings need to exercise. But, but then if obesity rates and gym memberships are rising at an equal amount, it means, okay, like something in that model of joining the gym or going to a gym is not working or is not enough. Right. And so for me, that was really impactful because I thought, you know what, you're right. Like, like if we're literally just working out an hour a day and like checking that box and then sitting for the other 15 hours, we're awake, like, okay, that's a problem. You know, that is means that we're going to continue to have problems, you know, whether it's those weight gain or yep. orthopedic issues or whatever. It's those 15 other hours of the day. That's exactly yep. how I call it. 
because we should be sleeping at least eight. We went over that non-negotiable. Um, so yeah, it's those. And when you put it that way to people, I think they see it because they're, you know, like, ah, oh, 15 hours. Yeah, the gym is only one of those hours, isn't it? And and it, and even CrossFitters, right? We People who CrossFit think they're doing so, so much good to their body and they're so fit and they're active. And then you speak to some of them and yeah, they're they're sitting at their desk for eight, eight hours a day. So it's, it's such an important piece, which I, I love what you guys are doing. And are, so is it primarily, so stand up for kids, are you guys more in the San Francisco area? Have you gone, um, you know, throughout the United States? Where are you guys with that? Well, we have, um, and you cut out for a second, but I think you're asking about the reach of stand up kids. Um, Mm -hmm. But we started off with our pilot school where we, it was actually our daughter's elementary school where we flipped the whole school, so 450 kids standing. And we don't have perfect data on this, but we think it's pretty close to about 95,000 kids nationwide that, that are standing or at least have access to a standing desk at school thanks to stand-up kids. So we've done a lot in the for, in the way of just plain education. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm the most proud of is, you know, we've gotten, we've done a good job of getting the word out about sitting, you know, and you're one of many people who say, oh yeah, you know, like I think of the starrettes, you know, when I'm sitting too long or whatever. So we've definitely sort of, we've definitely done a good job of making this part of the conversation, both for kids and adults. Um, And, you know, we're a small little nonprofit. Kelly and I run this thing on the side of our day jobs and we have an all volunteer board. Um, You know, we, we scrape by and raise as much money as we can. And we give out standing desk grants to teachers. We really work hard to try to give most of our grants to title one and low income schools um, because we figure, you know, the fancier right. schools can just buy their own standing. Parents, desk. Yeah, parents um, can just give the money. Yep. Yeah. Parents can do it or give the money or whatever. So, so that's been kind of our mission, but you know, the thing that we're excited about now is we've actually partnered with a couple of researchers in the department of education and department of ergonomics at UC Berkeley who are, actually, as we speak, writing and putting together a, a comprehensive study on kids' standing desks here in the Bay Area. Um, and we're hoping to do a, a, a couple, we're hoping to study a couple of schools over a two-year period. And the reason we are so excited about that is while there has actually been some really good research already that's come out around kids and standing desks, um, there's definitely more that needs to be done. And we feel like, um, at some point, our our real mission is to make some kind of legislative change so that, you know, if a school has infrastructure money to improve that standing desks are put in, or if new schools are built, standing desks are put in. You know, we want to try to um, mm-hmm. make it the, the norm. Involved. Yeah, you, right. you want to make it right. the norm. Absolutely. Right. You want to make it the norm. And so, so we feel like that's, you know, we're going to continue to chip away as this little nonprofit and you know, in five more years, we'll have, you know, another 100,000 desks in or whoever knows. But we feel like, you know, the big impact we're going to have is is sort of legislatively where we can actually go to legislatures and say, hey, this is the way kids need to learn in the 21st century. It's healthy for their minds and healthy for their bodies. And this is, you know, it, this is how we need to change our school environments. Um, and so the, that's where we... the science. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so that's where we think this thing can really just go nuclear is if we can actually get, you know, the people paying the bills at public schools to be buying these desks. <laughs> now, and and like I said, I have a three-year-old, but I would love it if she would um, have a standing desk at she's in preschool pretty much now and they're never sitting because who no. expects two and three-year-olds right. to sit? However, why do we expect five-year-olds to sit? Why do we expect six or seven-year-olds to sit all day long too? So um, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. I'll definitely put stand up for kids in the notes and um, have people go see what you guys are doing because it's absolutely phenomenal. And I know it only will grow more and more. Absolutely. Uh, And, and so you have two daughters and as being a mom and having all these wonderful accolades, what, and like you said, two, they're two total different daughters, but what do you want for your daughters as, as women, as, you know, future moms, maybe, um, yeah. what do you want? For yeah. Them? I mean, well, and, and actually I think about that question a lot and, you know, 
ultimately what I want in this age of like technology, I mean, sort of the, the 30,000 foot thing that I want in this sort of age of technology and anxiety is I want them to, you know, feel good about themselves, feel good in their own skin. Um, I want them to have healthy, happy relationships in their lives. I want them to find and do work that they love and they feel, uh, I kind of hate the word passionate. I want, I want them to find work that they're good at and brings them joy. Um, and you know, I, I, I want them to, and it's also really important to me that they contribute on a larger level. I mean, one of the things I struggle with is I'm raising my daughters in this very wealthy suburb of San Francisco called Marin County. And, um, I, I feel that that upbringing comes with it, a level of responsibility for them to sort of give back in whatever way that means. I mean, I certainly would never dictate that. It has to be something that they care about. Um, but it it's really important to me that they don't just live an insular life that's about their own selves and only their own family. Like, I, it's important to me that they care about, um, you know, the bigger world around them, that they want to contribute to making it a better place, that they appreciate... Um, the privilege that they're being raised with, um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, both locally and worldwide. Um, so those are kinds of the things, you know, th- those are really what, those are really the things I want them for them. I mean, you know, like, but really I want them to like feel good and happy and be able to have happy relationships. Yeah. You want to be ha- happy and healthy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy and healthy. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, yeah. So those, I think if, if I could boil it down, it would be those things. I like that. And and we talked about all these different pieces of your pie. My, my next question is, how do you balance? How do you balance yourself? You know, what are your top tips, really? What are your top tips to balance all those pieces of the pie, to balance your businesses, your yourself, your family, not only your daughters, but you and your husband? It's a loaded question, yeah. I realize. But if you have yeah. some simple tips that you well, do... I, yeah. Well, one of the things I had to do to achieve balance in my life is actually let go of trying to achieve balance. Um, because I have, you know, I have chosen and I, I appreciate it's a choice, but I'm raising two daughters. I'm running two businesses and a nonprofit. I like to be involved in my kids' school and I love to ride my mountain bike and do CrossFit and take care of, you know, paddle and exercise. And so I have like a lot of things on my, and I still have friendships and I want to have a social life and hang out with my husband. Right. So, so I have a lot of things on my list that I want to be doing on a very regular basis. And so, you know, what that means often is that I'm kind of in like, go, go, go mode a lot. Um, but I'm actually completely at peace with that. I mean, I don't, I don't, I hate the word self-care. Um, it makes me feel gross when I, when I say it out loud. Um, but the things I do to take care of myself are really, you know, making sure I exercise and sleep, um, spending some quality time away from my kids with my husband is really important. Um, making sure I take time to read books and, you know, read because I really just get a lot of sort of like calm and joy from reading. But, you know, other than that, I'm, I am kind of on the move a lot and, Um, but I also appreciate that that's a choice I've made to do those things and I'm totally okay with it. So, you know, that's sort of how I approach, how I approach it. And, you know, as far as tips for people, I really think that, you know, as moms and women probably we're all way too hard on ourselves and, (laughs) you know, like there's this expectation we're all supposed to be like perfectly skinny and but simultaneously muscular and only eat protein powder and vegetables and, and definitely have sex with our husband five days a week. And, um, you know, I mean, I just feel like the list, you know, and, and oh, we're supposed to always have oh, a manicure yeah. and a bikini wax and right. Like the amount of things that are put on to us from the outside is so many. And, you know, I, you know, like I've got a couple friends who are these amazing, amazing women who are, have these high level jobs in San Francisco where they are they're just like doing amazing cool things in the world like I'm so impressed by them and you know unfortunately 
the kind of job they have and also trying to be a mom and be a friend. And it means that like, you know, they may only have a chance to exercise two days a week and that's okay because they're following their passion in another way. And they're making sure they're moving their bodies enough so that they're still healthy, but you know, they're not like CrossFit healthy or CrossFit jacked. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I guess lately I've been feeling like moms and women generally just need to try to fit in what they can fit in and be nice to themselves. Yeah, um, be happy. Yeah, be happy with it. Yeah. Just try to try to push away as much of this external stuff and just really decide. Like for me, you know, it was about deciding what was like a non-negotiable, and I think everybody has their own non-negotiables. For me, it's exercise, good food, and sleep. Right, those are the non-negotiables. But for other people, it might be like. And, you know, non-negotiables might be like spending time with my friends and taking a hike and something else, right? Like everybody I think has to come up with whatever their own non-negotiables are. Um, and those can be very different and don't have to be anything like mine. But I think once you figure out what your non-negotiables are, make sure that you make time for those things. Um, then you can just push away all that other noise that's being pushed on us all the time. I couldn't. Yeah. Moms, we have to do everything and anything. So I think that is a great way. Be nicer to yourself. Celebrate your small wins because we are so hard on ourselves and we don't give ourselves credit sometimes. And I love how you pointed out the non-negotiables are completely different for different people. But the, the most important part of it is actually making them yourself and then figuring out what your non-negotiables are. And yeah. and all of the things that you said moms are supposed to be, I think that was the most enjoyable. That made me laugh very, very hard. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I have three more questions for you. So the three questions I always ask everybody at the end. One is who inspires you or what inspires you? Oh, man. Well, I and it could just be because this is on the forefront of my mind. And so the person I'm going to say now is Michelle Obama, because I just read her book. Um, although there are probably 20 other people that also equally inspire me. Um, but you know, I really related to her book because she, like me was a lawyer who left her law practice to do another thing. And in some ways, maybe like reluctantly, because, you know, here she was like, well, now I'm first lady, so I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. And, you know, in my case, I, I it was 100% my choice to leave the, the practice of law. Um, uh, but still, it was like something that we shared. And then also just trying to raise two daughters in this day and age. Um, and I think I have such admiration for her raising two daughters who seem at least, you know, talking about that test we were talking about, like, okay, let's wait and see if they're 25. You know, she seems to have raised, not she alone, but I mean, she and Barack Obama, they seem to have raised two, like, pretty grounded, healthy, engaged, smart girls, despite the fact that like they were doing it under a massive, the, like the most massive microscope you could ever do it under. So, you know, and, and I appreciate also that she was able to make an impact with her Let's Move campaign, which Stand Up Kids has actually been connected to. So I, I think there's a lot of things about the way that she has cared about contributing and giving back, how she tried to carve out an interesting, impactful role for herself as first lady and now afterwards. And that that she was able to like, I mean, really, I think it's really impressive to raise like grounded kids in that environment. So I, you know, Very I just impressive. finished her book and I am a huge fan of her. <laughs> well, I have her book on Audible and I had started listening to it and then I got tr sidetracked by podcasts. So you have inspired me to start listening to it again. And I've, and actually one of the previous episodes, um, a good family friend, Carol Demas, who's uh, a child advocacy um, business and she said that as well that Michelle Obama was one of uh, the people that inspired her so we have two people now so I definitely will have to finish that book um, yeah definitely get through some of the early years because it, like once you get to the campaign you the White House like a total page turner so um, you just get some it's just very interesting to see the behind the scenes of what it was like for them so I think you, you know some of the beginnings a little slow but stay the course I think you'll really enjoy it yeah, and I heard she's so real, I think. And in Audible, it's actually her telling the story. So it's it's really cool. So if you ever want to listen to it, get it on Audible. It's her actually telling her own story, which is really cool. That's really cool. 
Uh, all right. So second question is, what's the most rewarding thing about being a mom? I think for me, it is really simple. It is sort of watching my kids experience the world. Um, you know, obviously that's more acute when they're really little, you know, they like see something they've never seen before and they're overjoyed by like, you know, a digger or something. (laughs) But, um, but you know, that sort of continues on to just like watch my kids learn and grow and become more articulate and see what kind of people they're going to become. I mean, now I have an almost 11 year old and a 14 year old. And so, you know, I'm starting to get a glimpse into like who they're going to be as people. And I, I just love watching that. And I love sort of being part of their journey um, in becoming who they are. And, you know, I see my role as a mom as like raising, trying to like raise kids who are going to be grounded, well-grounded adults. So it's kind of interesting to see them on this journey and how they're figuring things out. And, you know, I mean, I'm right on the precipice of a high school kid. Um, and my friend who's a high school teacher just said to me last week, she said, Juliet, get ready for your high school kid to serve her parental <laughs> divorce papers on you. So, I mean, I'm still in this place where, um, you know, my, my child You're kind of still new, like the cool mom. <laughs> yeah, I'm still cool. Um, you know, my teenager still wants to hang out with me. And so I'm able to just, you know, appreciate her. And my 11-year-old is just hilarious and funny. So, I mean, I, it's it's sort of a simple answer, but I really just sort of, like, and I feel lucky to be in their presence. Um, I don't know if you feel like this, but I'm always like, well, I grew that purse, that human <laughs> being, my body, and now look at her, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I just get a lot of simple joy out of sort of witnessing them become whoever it is they're going to be. Um, and you have 10 years to write your book. So when, yes. when oldest daughter is 25, start writing years, like, now. Like, yeah, I'll be like, did it work? Did anything I did work? <laughs> Or are my kids not well grounded anyway? But I, you know, I'm optimistic, Michelle. Optimistic. I I think I think it'll I think it would be a great book. Um, and the last question is, what does strong as a mother mean to you? Man, I mean, I think what I try to do as a mom, I think sort of my main goal is to sort of show them by example what kind of person, you know, I want them to be or what a strong mom is. And what I mean by that is like, I really invested in my own emotional stability. Like I want to be emotionally and psychologically present for my kids. And I, you know, I want to have them see that I have loving, you know, relationships, both with Kelly and with my own friends. I, I, it's really important to me that they see that I care about taking care of my body. You know, we've got a home gym. So you know, our kids are just used to like exercise and taking care of our bodies as like, it's part of like their everyday life. Um, I'm also really a fan of like making sure my kids see that I can take care of myself financially. Um, I think that that's a really important thing for girls to sort of be able to be financially independent. I mean, I, I'm really happy that I don't practice law, um, now, but I also love, knowing that I could always fall back on being a lawyer at any point in my life. If we ever had a family emergency or crisis or anything that I could like in two seconds have a high paying job where I could easily take care of my kids by myself, you know, for me, that's important that they see that. Um, And then I think sort of going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, like I want them to see that I have my own life and that I have my own ambitions professionally that I have my own friendships, that, you know, that I'm sort of engaged in the world separate and apart from them as in addition to being their mom. I think that to me shows, shows them that I'm a strong mom. You know, I'm not, I, I of course am in many ways at their service, but in many ways I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, doing my own thing as well. So, um, so I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a, th- that was a lot of things. No, I think that was, strong mom, it, but I think Julia, it goes back. Things, yeah, it goes back to the pie. If we're just talking about, yeah. I hope you have some pie this week. Just to enroll, know, next time you have pie, you're going to be remembering this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I, I love all those. And the thing that kind of touched me is the financial one. Like the other ones, of course, I love. But many of us, as girls, we grew up with our dad being the the breadwinner or our, our 
my mom, I was lucky enough that my mom was able to stay home and be with us. And that was, you know, because my dad was at work all the time. But a lot of girls don't see that. I think it's changing now because, you know, more women are working and it's dual right. income. But I I do really like that aspect of it, of it too. The just, it's not a piece that I've, I've thought of or heard of, but I do think it's really important too, just to show women that uh, it's the, the female can, can bring it, bring in the dough too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like- and I think, I think it's like, you know, and I, I am one, like I have quite a few friends who are stay at home moms and, and in a lot of ways, I think that's actually harder than having a job. Um, or at least for me, it would be. So I have nothing but the utmost respect for stay at home moms. But for me anyway, the only way I could choose to be a stay at home mom is if I had a real solid financial backup plan, like it would be too unsettling for me, you know, like, like, you know, hard stuff happens in life, right? So if all of a sudden one day Kelly keels over from a heart attack, it's like, I don't want to find myself without a husband and absolutely no way to make money, you know? And I also think I see, I definitely see women making relationship choices, um, i.e. staying in maybe bad relationships because they're, you know, of financial dependence. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so for me, I was always really clear about the fact that I wanted to make sure that you know, my marriage was never, ever about financial dependence, that that was never, a you know, was never a deciding factor for me and whether to stay married to someone or not, you know, and, and also just always having kind of like a financial emergency backup plan, like that I can, you know, if, if I need to, I can, you know, I can raise my kids without external income, you know, I, so that's always been important to me. Oh, that's great. Thanks again for listening to Strongest Mothers Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, give us a rating, but most importantly, spread the Strongest Mothers love to others. For more information and inspiration, follow me at Fumagali underscore FitPlate or subscribe to my email list at FitPlateNutrition.com.